Today our concentration is going to be verses 44 to 54. Now I've got 56 on the, the bulletin, and actually earlier I mentioned we are going to close out the chapter. But next week, uh, Lord willing, we will uh, take up with verse 55 and carry on through chapter 24, verse 12, as we look at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But today, we're looking at his his suffering upon the cross. And as we go through this portion of Scripture, there's two things that I especially want us to focus upon. First of all, we're going to notice that throughout these phases of the event of the cross, and I think Luke basically gives us four phases to this uh, scene of the cross, including the burial, uh, I want you to notice how he also focuses on the people and the, the, these bystanders and witnesses and their varied responses to Jesus. What I want us to see in that is that very clearly, not every individual person is saved without exception. That's very clear. Not every individual person is saved without an exception. But we are going to see that every kind of person is saved without distinction. So not every individual is saved without exception, but every kind of person can be saved. And we see every kind of person being saved without a distinction between them. So we know God is no respecter of persons. So that first. And then second, what I want us to see is how these people are saved and how any of us are saved. It is amazing the individuals who are converting to Christ in this portion of Scripture. It's amazing that their sin is put away and that they are restored to God. How can that be? What exactly is accomplished by Jesus at the cross? What does He suffer? What does He make for us that can put away all of our sin and restore us to God? So this morning... As we get started here, I want us to read uh, our portion that we're going to be emphasizing, verses 44 to 54 of Luke 23. Hear the word of the Lord. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances... And the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Father, we need your help. I pray, Father, that you would, as you did in this this hour for which your Son came into the world, so now I pray that you would pour out your grace and your mercy on us. We do have a claim on it. It's not from ourselves. It's not from our efforts. It's not from any achievement. There's no reward that we could claim of any good in us, but we are in Christ. We are in your Son. You have made it so. And so we come to you in Him and ask, Father, for your grace in this hour, I pray that you would put your word down deep in our hearts and you would use it for the transformation of our lives, that we would be conformed to Jesus and His glory. We ask in His name that you would give to us your Holy Spirit. Amen. In Luke's narration of Jesus' death, from verses 26, really on to verse 56 at the end of the chapter, we see four phases to the event of the cross. It begins with this procession to the cross site, then followed by the crucifixion itself, the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death, and then fourth, it ends with Christ's burial. And, as I said earlier, in each of these phases, of course, Luke is focusing on Jesus, but also on the people involved. He, he, he notes their quite varied responses to all that is happening. So, first of all, the procession of the cross is verses 26 to 32. We looked at these verses last week. We have here Jesus being led away, obviously leading the procession followed by Simon of Cyrene, who has been compelled to carry Jesus' cross. Third, we have the multitude Luke speaks of, especially these women who are mourning and who are in such a state of grief because they know what is about to occur. And then fourth, in the procession of the cross, we have the two criminals who have been led away to be put to death with Jesus. The second phase is the crucifixion itself. That's verses 33 to 43. We covered the first part of that last week. And again, as Luke talks about the crucifixion, he is surveying the scene around the cross. So he speaks of the people who are watching, the rulers who are scoffing, the soldiers who are mocking, and then the two criminals, one who joins with the others in sneering at Jesus, but the other who is pleading for mercy and who is assured by Jesus that he will be with Jesus himself in the paradise of God today. And then third, the third phase. Luke turns to the aftermath of the cross. And once again, this is in verses 47 to 49. He focuses on the varied responses to the death of Jesus. We have the centurion first, who recognizes the truth about Jesus and worships the crowds who are afraid and confused, and then finally Jesus' followers who are standing back and witnessing all that is unfolding. And then in the fourth phase, Luke writes of Jesus' burial, in which Joseph of Arimathea honors him, and the women who had been his followers for so long witness where he is buried and return to their homes waiting for Sunday to come. So all of these responses, all through these phases, we see these responses to Jesus. 
And so much of what the people do and what they say and what they feel is to be expected. We expect a sizable portion of the crowds to be confused and to, to lament all that is going on. And we also expect a, quite a number, his enemies, to scoff at him and to sneer at his death. These responses are to be expected. But we also see amazing things happening all over the place. Because as it happens that Jesus pours out his life's blood upon the ground outside the city of Jerusalem, he is also pouring out salvation. Salvation that is landing all over the place and really in the most unexpected places. So those who are saved make up such a diverse group of people. Really, I'm going to speak of four individuals, two we focused on last week. In these four individuals, we don't see any kind of common ground at all between them. How they would relate to each other personally, in their lives, culture, all of that, it would be a real stretch. They're so diverse, and yet all of them alike become converts to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we clearly don't see salvation landing on every individual without exception, but it does land on every kind of person without distinction. So in each of the four phases of the cross event, there is an unexpected convert. Salvation for the conscript who carried the cross, for the criminal who hung next to it, the centurion who oversaw the cross, and the council member who took Jesus down. Simon of Cyrene is the convert involved in the procession. And I know, let me, let me sum, sum it up this way. Um, I think it's interesting. You have these four individuals, and the two that bookend this thing are named. They're identified by their name and by their location. Simon of Cyrene, and Joseph of Arimathea. And Luke does not note their confession. Rather, he notes, he highlights their involvement in all that transpires. But then you have these two individuals in the middle, the criminal and the centurion, who go unnamed and are not noted so much for what they do in all of this, their involvement, but rather they're highlighted for the confession that they make. So you have these four individuals who are very different. Simon of Cyrene involved in the procession, the criminal, the convert of the crucifixion, the centurion who is converted out of the aftermath of Jesus' death, and then Joseph of Arimathea who is the convert involved in Jesus' burial. I made the case for Simon's salvation last week. And I know it's not explicit in Scripture, but I really believe it very firmly that he is not just a picture of discipleship. We spoke about this, how he is compelled by, by Rome of all sources to take up the cross and to carry it following Jesus. But I think there's more to this than him unknowingly giving us a picture of discipleship. I think that from the way that the authors of the Gospels write, he became a disciple himself. And uh, let me just quickly mention this, that... 
the way that the gospel writers construct their narratives, they tend to identify two people by name who are not involved in the major cast of characters. Those people who would be known to the church historically, and then those people known to the church personally. And so that's where Simon of Cyrene fits in. And you can very much see this in Mark's narration of the cross and how Mark speaks of Simon and his family. And then, of course, last week we also spoke of this criminal whose whose faith is utterly astounding. And the mercy of Jesus on his life is even more astounding than that. That this man is saved is incredible because all of these followers of Jesus, at the, at the cross, they are losing their hope. They are confused. They're in grief. They don't know what's going on. They can't explain any of this. They are filled with sorrow, losing their hope. At the same time that this man who hangs next to Jesus is getting his hope for the very first time. Well, let's continue in verse 44. And what I want to do first is is speak of the different responses to Jesus that we see throughout the rest of this narrative. And then we're going to come back to verses 44 and 45 in particular. And we're going to see how it is that they could be saved and how it is that we too may be saved. So verse 44 again. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. This centurion, you can hear the word century in there, means that he is a Roman soldier who has been recognized for his accomplishments, promoted in the ranks. He is looked to, he is respected, and he rules, in the word century, you can hear it, he rules, commands a hundred soldiers. He had overseen the crucifixion. I don't doubt that he had joined with the others in mocking the suffering of Jesus. But now in the aftermath of Jesus' death, he turns. He has heard the prayer of Jesus for the forgiveness of his enemies. He has seen these signs, these phenomena at his suffering. And he has heard that last prayer in which Jesus entrusts himself to God. I don't think that he knows what all of it means. I don't believe that he has the discernment to know the significance of the phenomena in the sky and in the city. But he realizes that this suffering that they have inflicted upon Jesus is unjust. For Jesus is truly just. When he says that this man is innocent, he is not simply saying that he is innocent of the charges that are brought against him. The word that he uses is literally righteous. He says this man was righteous. And it says he praises God. And that's the definitive statement by Luke that shows us that this is more than just saying, wow, I think we were wrong about this. No, he praises God. 
He worships. I believe that by the Spirit, He converts to Christ. In fact, according to Mark's account, it says, when He saw that in this way He breathed His last, He said, truly this man was the Son of God. And think about that for a moment. That He confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. The very thing that the Jewish rulers had accused Jesus of saying falsely, the Roman centurion confesses to be true. And the very title that the Roman Caesar appropriates to himself, calling himself the Son of God, divine, august, the majestic, and so on. The very title that the Roman Caesar appropriates to himself, the centurion now ascribes to the very man whom he just crucified. And what we have happening here is the prayer of Jesus upon the cross coming to fulfillment. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, He prayed for His executioners. For they know not what they do. Let's go on to verses 48 and 49. In the aftermath of the cross, more response. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Luke surveys two different crowds. They're two very different crowds of people. And they these two crowds have two very different relationships to Jesus. But they're alike in a way in that neither one of these crowds knows what to make of what they have seen. And they are both filled with grief and sorrow and confusion as well. Verses 50 to 54. Let's read them again. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. It is late Friday afternoon when Jesus breathes his last. And at sunset, the Sabbath is going to begin. And so the work that must be done, the death that must be died, and the work that must be done in the aftermath must take place quickly. Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the Sanhedrin, which means that he is a member of Israel's leading religious and political council. This is the council that led the way in all that Jesus suffered. They're the ones who demanded that Jesus be crucified. Now we realize that even amongst this leadership, not all of the, the men were against Jesus. In fact, it's, it's rather startling to me how similarly Luke describes the character of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, and you compare it to what he says about Simon and Anna in the beginning of his narrative. He, he speaks of uh, Simon. You remember Simon and Anna who who greeted 
Mary and Joseph at the temple when Jesus had been brought to the temple when he was just six or seven weeks old. Simon is described as a just man, a good man. And Anna is one who is looking for the redemption for Israel. And, and so in very similar terms, it's like Luke connects these people, Simon and Anna at the beginning of Jesus' life and Joseph at the end. And they're, they're really quite parallel to each other. They had honored Jesus in his first public appearance. And Joseph now honors Jesus in his last public appearance. Joseph has been a believer in secret up to this time. We're, we're told in another one of the Gospels. Kind of like Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night. John chapter 3. In fact, we know from John's account that both of these individuals who followed in secret were rulers in Israel. Um, Nicodemus may well have been, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. He may have been a member of the Sanhedrin as well. Both of them had followed Jesus secretly. But now it's changed. I think this is, this is pretty amazing. When you consider that the immediate disciples of Jesus have all run. They're all hiding. They're afraid. And now Joseph and Nicodemus, we, we learn this from John um, chapter 19, I believe it is. Nicodemus is also involved. Now these men who had followed Jesus secretly risk the wrath of their peers by doing Jesus public honor in his burial. They have not joined in the charges against Jesus or in the persecution, in the brutal public shaming, but very publicly they bury Jesus in honor. So let's just think about this. We quickly reviewed the first two who I believe convert to Jesus. We've also now talked about the centurion and Joseph of Arimathea. How is it that any one of these individuals can be saved? How is it that God can give them mercy? So the first thing we looked at, let me just say it again, is that not every individual person is saved without exception, but every kind of person may be saved. And we see it happening. They are saved without distinction. How is it that they can be saved? How is it that you and I can be saved? Let me put it this way concerning the criminal. How is it that this man who threw his life away to the very last day of his life can on the last day receive mercy from God? How is it? Let me put it two more ways, okay? How is it that he can be justly judged by the world? I mean, that's even what he confesses. He says, we are being judged justly. How is it that he can be judged justly by the world and yet receive the mercy of heaven? How is it that he can be crucified outside Jerusalem rightly and yet on the very same day be found alive and well with Jesus in the paradise of God? How is, how is that possible? And what of this Roman centurion? This pagan Roman centurion, this Gentile. And what about the leading role that he plays in the crucifixion of Jesus? He oversees his execution. He joins in all that is going on. How is it that God gives him light and brings him to himself? 
And what about Joseph even? Who has been a disciple only in secret. Who is still publicly linked to the Sanhedrin who had led the charge against Jesus. How is it that all of their sin can be put away? How is it that all of your sin can be put away? How is it that you and I can receive mercy from God? It is not that God simply would have it this way. It's not that any individual can come to the throne of God in the aftermath of their own death and God simply say that the bygones of sin will just be bygones. Let bygones be bygones. Come into my kingdom. It's not simply that God wills away sin, but there is a work A work done at the cross. It is the work that God the Father arranged in eternity past, which Jesus Christ accomplishes in His death, and which the Holy Spirit applies to all who will receive by faith the mercy of God. And it's the work of justice for sin and mercy for sinners. Where the righteous one dies so that the unrighteous may live. Let's home back in on verses 44 and 45. It said again, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Beneath these two phenomena, are signs for those who will discern them. In the darkening of the sky, we have the sign of the judgment of God. And in the tearing of the curtain, we have the sign of the mercy of God. The first one, the darkness, signifies the ultimate curse. And the second one, the tearing of the curtain, signifies the ultimate blessing. It's almost like, well, Luke, he really does, he just, he summarizes these two things very simply, very concisely recounts them as they have happened. But what you and I need to see is that in both of these two signs, God is closing a key chapter in the history of redemption and he is opening a new chapter, a brand new chapter for the people of God. What we're going to do in the minutes we have left is we're going to step back right to the very beginning and we're going to trace these two themes that we see brought to a climax in the cross of Jesus. Go back to the beginning with, first of all, the darkness. It doesn't take long for the Bible to speak of darkness. Genesis 1 and verses 1 and 2. What did we have? There was a a, a void. There was a formlessness. There was a chaos. It said that darkness was on the face of the deep. And darkness is symbolic for the absence of God. Darkness is symbolic for even moral chaos and also for God's judgment. And the first words that we hear from the mouth of God are, let there be light. And God saw the light that it was good. It was good. And very quickly in the narrative of the Bible, in the history of salvation, darkness becomes the symbol attached to the judgment of God. 
I don't have time to recount them in detail, but remember the last three plagues that were poured upon Egypt in judgment as they held Israel, God's covenant people, in captivity. The common feature of all three of the last plagues is darkness. Such a dense swarm of locusts that there is darkness over the land. The ninth plague being darkness itself on the land for three days. Darkness so thick that it can be felt. And in the last plague, I'm actually recounting them in detail like I said I didn't have time for. In the last plague, we have God striking down the firstborn of Egypt at midnight. And the people rose in the night and found their dead. And a great cry rose up from Egypt. So, in the last three plagues, the common feature is darkness. We could go on throughout the Bible. The prophet Joel says about the day of the Lord. He says, it is a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. What did Jesus say was the destiny of the wicked? He said that they would be cast into the outer darkness. Peter said that for the wicked was reserved the gloom of utter darkness. But the way that I want you to realize, best of all, what is happening to Jesus at the cross is when we go back to the Old Testament and look at the key pronouncement of God's blessing upon His people and the way that God terms and pictures that blessing. These verses are so familiar to you, I think, but don't have time to turn to them. And that's okay because they are familiar. But listen to Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 to 26. This is the great blessing from the Lord to His people in the Old Testament. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, the priests. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. How did He picture the blessing that He proclaims on His people? It's in the shining of His face. It's the light of the face of God is lifted up and is over His people. And so throughout their history, this is how the people of God would plead. And it's how they would sing. And I I could give you many verses, but let me give you three from the Psalms. Listen to their prayers. Psalm 4. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. They're going back to the proclamation of blessing and they're saying, give us that. Lift up the light of your face upon us. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. And then in Psalm 80, three times we have this refrain, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let Your face shine that we may be saved. How would they be blessed? How would they be saved when the face of their God shown upon them. 
And so in the last three hours of Jesus' suffering upon the cross, what happens? The light of the sun fails and darkness covers the whole land. For in these hours, Jesus becomes sin for us. He is bearing in Himself our sin upon the tree. He is bearing in Himself your sin. And He is bearing in Himself our sin. He, the innocent one, is being charged with our guilt. And so the favor of God, the smile of God upon His Son is withdrawn in this time, symbolized by the failing of the sun and darkness enveloping the scene of the cross. It is not blessing, but Jesus is becoming a curse for us. As it says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Quote from Deuteronomy 21. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Christ was cursed. He became a curse on the cross, symbolized in the darkness, so that we might have the blessing of God. This is why Matthew 27 says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemesabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As R.C. Sproul put it, this was the scream of the damned. The sign of judgment. The sign of tribulation and distress and wrath and fury. This is what Jesus experienced from the hand of God. What we deserved upon the cross. But as the judgment of God descends upon the righteous, the mercy of God is poured out for the unrighteous. The righteous suffers the greatest curse that the unrighteous might receive the greatest blessing. Again, we're going to step back and we'll do this quickly. You know, what is it that happened to humankind's relationship to God when the first man and the first woman rebelled in Eden? Death happened. Just as God promised, there was a death. He banished humankind from His face, from His fellowship, from the light of His glory. And what God did in the aftermath of their sin, once He had pronounced the curse upon them, and also a mercy, God drove the people from the garden. And at the entry to the garden, He put a guard so that they would not be able to return to the glory of God and to the tree of life and experience healing. There was a guard. And this guard would serve as a visible reminder of our separation from God for centuries and centuries to come. It says in Genesis 3, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Well, we know the story of Scripture that follows. We know of rather than returning to, to righteousness, there is a descent, there is a plummet by the human race into more and more gross and gross sin. And then God in time will call out a people from the human race to be His chosen covenant own. When He redeems the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from Egypt, there is, it is like that there is a return to Eden even in the wilderness. For God appoints for His people a tabernacle. A tabernacle where the glory of God Himself will dwell. God will dwell with His people again. And so it continued for years. You have the tabernacle and then the temple. And it really is like a return to Eden. It's like a return to paradise. When you read about the beauty of this tabernacle and the beauty of the temple, the Bible speaks of the tabernacle being a place of beauty and glory, silver and gold, fine twined linen, skillfully embroidered. And then in the temple in particular, there are flowers everywhere. Flowers carved into every place that flowers can be carved. You know that in the tabernacle and the temple, there were two most special rooms. There was the holy place, first of all, where the priesthood would enter daily for the ministry of intercession, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. And then within the heart of the tabernacle and the temple, there is the most holy place where no one could enter. No one but the high priest and only on one day of the year. And the only way that he could approach into that most holy place where the immediate glory of God was dwelling above the Ark of the Covenant, he had to go in with blood on the Day of Atonement. What was it that separated? Remember this. What separated the most holy place from the holy place? There was a veil, a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. And within that veil, upon that veil, images of cherubim skillfully woven in because it was like a return to paradise. It was a reminder of what we had and what we lost, and what we had been cut off from, and what God was now guarding. There was a guard there to restrict us from getting back to the glory of God. And so in the cross, when darkness descends upon the Lord Jesus Christ and He suffers the wrath of God for sin, wrath is born, what happens? The temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. That beautiful, such a thick curtain and a few stories high, that curtain that has upon it the cherubim that symbolize our separation from God. It is torn in two. And so when Jesus suffers the greatest curse, we receive, flowing from Christ, the greatest mercy. There is the greatest judgment. 
and for us the greatest blessing. The way to God is open wide again. We may return to the glory of God because of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how these individuals who are so different from one another, individuals who are some of them pagan, some of them from self-righteous religious backgrounds, some of them having completely thrown away and wasted their lives until the last moments, this is how their sin can be put away because of what Jesus suffered on the cross. The greatest judgment that they might have the greatest blessing. Christ became a curse that we might have the blessing of God. At the cross, the floodgates of God, of His mercy, are open wide that no man may shut. And we have our way back to God. Now, you and I may approach the throne of His grace with all boldness and with every claim that we need to make before God. It's not found in us, but it's found in Christ. And the fact that God has united us to His Son. We have died with Him. We were buried with Him. And we have been made alive with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. What is true for Jesus is true for us. The debt of our sin is paid. We have His righteous record. And we have His welcome into the glory of God. What do we do with this? We just glory in it. We glory in it. And we worship God with all of our lives because of it. And we spread the news of what He has done for us to all who need to hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Christ. We thank You, Father, for the perfect plan which You arranged in eternity. We thank You for its perfect accomplishment at the cross that Jesus poured out His life to death that we may live by Your mercy. Oh Lord, I pray that every single person here would put all their hope in Your mercy which You have poured out in Your Son. I pray that all our faith would be in Him and we would have the reassurance in our hearts that we belong to You through Christ. And may we be faithful, Lord, to worship and to spread the word of what you have done for us, the good news of Jesus to everyone who needs to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.